ever miss your imaginary childhood friend? That rascally striped pony, Mr. Pickles? Well, on this Selected Shorts, join me, Meg Wallitzer, for stories about imaginary friends for adults. Get ready for playtime with unicorns, magical cockroaches, and iPhones that talk back way too much. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Making new friends is hard as an adult. Outside of work friends or those people with whom you might share a common interest, like stocks or chickens or making chicken stocks, how do you actually find them? It'd be nice to imagine that they might just appear one day. Like those imaginary friends we had when we were kids, just poof, loyal companions that materialized at the exact moment we felt lonely or upset. Back then, maybe they'd provide moral support when we had to eat all the vegetables on our plates, including that weird white broccoli thing. I guess I mean cauliflower. Now, well, we'd probably need them to appear every time we look at Twitter. I once had an imaginary friend. She was a grown woman who was apparently the cousin of our family dachshund, Max. And her name was Amber. It was spelled like the word amber, which I'd only seen in print but had never heard pronounced. I don't know which aspect of that description is the weirdest. I suspect most children's imaginary friends are a little weird, at least from the vantage point of adulthood. They're kind of like scarecrows fashioned out of whatever happens to be lying around in a kid's consciousness. I remember walking in my backyard with our dog Max and his cousin Amber and chatting away happily with her. I don't recall Amber ever replying. Maybe I liked having her around because she was a comforting presence. I mean, she was part mother, part dog. What could be better? Someone to lick my face and also make me craft macaroni and cheese. I wonder what kind of imaginary friends adults would create. I don't think they'd be as pure or as whimsical as the ones we invented when we were kids. Instead, they'd probably inherit all of our neuroses and our worries about the world. Instead of making us feel less alone, they might only confirm our fears. But still, maybe an uncanny new friend, regardless of their flaws, would be worth it? By the end of today's episode of Selected Shorts, you'll know for sure. The adults in these stories discover their own supernatural sidekicks. Maybe they're the product of an overactive imagination, or maybe they really do represent a visitation from the beyond. In one story, that friend is a unicorn. In the next, it's a cockroach. And in the third, it's a sentient iPhone. And in each story, our narrators are forced to ask themselves about the nature of this strange presence and whether its imperfect attentions are worth the strife. Our first story featuring an uncanny sidekick is by Elizabeth Crane. She's the author of story collections including Turf and the memoir This Story Will Change. We've read her stories a lot on shorts. She paints vivid portraits of dark, strange situations and makes them all incredibly funny. So she was an obvious choice when we were asking writers to contribute to our first-ever selected short story anthology titled Small Odysseys. The resulting commission, Unicorn Me, brings a literal spirit guide into being in the form of a unicorn. And we got the perfect person to bring that unicorn to life, the actor Miriam Shore. She's known for shows including Younger, as well as the musical Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Now, Miriam Shore reads Unicorn Me by Elizabeth Crane. Unicorn Me 
I picture a unicorn. The meditation guide says to picture a glowing spiritual being like the Buddha or Mother Mary or whoever, and then to picture that being in a scenario that's troubling you. I picture the moment my husband told me he wanted to investigate with another woman, a uh, textile artist we knew casually. It seems my husband had hoped to investigate and also be married to me, uh, which is not an idea I'm personally into. I have always said people should configure their relationships in whatever way floats their boats. You wanna have six boats in your marriage, have at it. I want two, two boats. <laughs> this was always our agreement. The glowing being is then supposed to say, I guess, spiritual things, or at least something your better self would say. Unicorn me says pretty much the same things I said. So either I have a failure of imagination for higher level spiritual chat, or I am already a spiritual unicorn. I mean, is unicorn me supposed to say, bless you and keep you, dear investigator? The unicorn pulls a small glowing cube out from behind one of its wings and hands it to me. See the gift, meditation dude says. I can't see the gift inside the box at all, just something that looks like swirling smoke or a cloud. Now the spiritual being touches you gently to say goodbye. And I giggle because a unicorn raising a hoof to my shoulder to anoint me or whatever is very cartoony and not spiritual seeming. The unicorn says, you'll be fine. And then floats off to, I don't know, some other divorcee's guided meditation. You'll be fine, is hardly an assurance I can grab onto. I cannot open the box, so I try shaking it, but just makes the smoke cloud swirl more noiselessly. I decide it might make me feel better to smash one of my husband's violins. <laughs> he used to make violins. Now he investigates. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not a violin smasher. I'm someone who thinks about smashing violins. I've dabbled in smashing things, and it always feels utterly stupid and disappointing. I once got dumped the day before Valentine's Day, and I slammed the door, and it bounced back and hit me in the forehead. <laughs> Another time, after a fight with my mom, I threw a glass to the floor as hard as I could, and it bounced. <laughs> That's the entire history of my smashing. Yesterday, I screamed, I don't want a divorce in my house to no one from a place down low in my core, 16 O's and divorce. But I stopped quickly because screaming is even more exhausting than crying. Yesterday, I bought a giant donut way overloaded with sprinkles. I'm old enough to know now that when I eat such a donut, I will begin to feel like garbage before I've even finished eating the donut. So I stopped eating donuts long ago because I don't like to feel like garbage anymore. I mean, no one would probably ever say they like feeling like garbage. I'm just saying that these days I work to head it off at the pass, moving quickly from garbage sighting to end result. But I'm coming to hate this quality 
in myself. When I met my husband on paper, he looked like all those same romantic sprinkled donuts who went before, too young, so sad, violin maker. But off paper, he was kind and sweet, made me mix CDs, <laughs> left me love notes, and he always showed up. And he looked at me the way you dream of being looked at. And we fell in love. And when I decided to marry him, I had come to believe that he was not a sprinkled donut, that he was a nice bowl of blueberries. Part of me wants to be like my most favorite of well-written, ragey, literary anti-heroes, the ones described as unlikable in book reviews written by men, and just go royally screw some stuff up unconsciously, but I feel so irreversibly conscious. And also, I'm just tired. When I try to imagine running into my husband's girlfriend, the best I can muster is a hot stare, maybe like a shaming head shake. And as always, I feel the hangover of this before I take the drink. I prevent this problem in real life by not going out. But hey, progress, not perfection. <laughs> in the past, I've solved problems by moving to a different state. That's not off the table. I tried the guided meditation several more times. Trying to evolve spiritually has its benefits, though in my experience you don't reap them in the crap moments when you need them most, but for the love of psychic uniforms, where is the release lever for this part of me? I want it out. One time the unicorn just says, dude, gently, but like with a hint of tough love. And again, it gives me the cloud-filled box, not wanting to be rude to my imaginary unicorn. I wait until he's gone to hurl the box out of my hands, and it lands in the driveway intact and as cloudy as it has been. I look to see if the box has a lid or something I missed, but it appears to be one perfectly sealed cube. You can't even see any miters. Like, it's an impossible thing. I grab the sledgehammer from the garage to smash it open. This does not produce satisfying results. It produces no results. The box of clouds accepts the blow as though it were made of jello, returning immediately to its solid form, clouds still swirling. Freaking unicorn! I say to no one in my yard. What is in the box? The unicorn conveniently returns to offer his response. What do you think is in the box? I think a cloud is in the box. A cloud is in the box. That's it? A cloud? I'm not saying there's not also something else in the box. What do you want to be in the box? I want my sweet, loving husband before this vixen came along in the box. Second choice. <laughs> I want his hurt to be as bad as my hurt, forever, like mine. 
You can't really know how awful he does or doesn't feel or even how you will feel where forever is concerned. Ah, whatever, unicorn. Third choice. Clarity? It's a box of clouds. Another choice. Acceptance. Okay, then acceptance is in the box. If that's true, why not tell me that the first time I asked? The unicorn shrugs, makes a sort of sorry not sorry face, but a unicorn shrug is extremely cute and somehow conveys a note of care. I didn't sense you'd accept that answer. Okay, then if acceptance is in the box, how do I get it out? Listen, I've given you all the information I'm allowed right now, and I have another thing to get to. What thing does a unicorn have to get to? There are other people in the world besides you. I toss the box of clouds into the trash. Weeks later, I venture downtown to have lunch with a girlfriend. I haven't been downtown in months for fear of running into him, her, him and her together, anyone I know. Leaving the restaurant, we do see the girlfriend. A punch to my stomach. She's wearing what can only be one of her own works. It's made from heavy wool, so it might be called a sweater, but it doesn't resemble a body-shaped garment so much as an oversized ball of multicolored yarn complete with a set of fat knitting needles holding together her hair, something you'd more likely see on the floor in the corner of an out-of-the-way art gallery with an audio box of a detached-sounding woman's voice narrating, unraveling, 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 (laughs) on a loop. I'm frozen for a moment, jaw clenched so tight I feel like I might crack my teeth. And then the ball of yarn and I lock eyes for some portion of a second, long enough for me to think she's about to charge me, but she doesn't. She spins in the other direction in her stupid ball of wool and trips over the loose strand of yarn hanging down and stumbles a good six to ten feet in front of her like one of those viral videos where a model falls down the runway before she rights herself by grabbing onto a street sign. It happens against my will. I begin to laugh hysterically. It's confirmed I am the horrible person. I am laughing at someone for tripping down the street. My friend is not laughing the way I am, but she is smiling. Occasionally I believe in karma, she says, as it suits my needs. I haven't laughed once since my husband went investigating. I try the meditation one last time. Unicorn shows up, gives me the box again. It's still cloudy but at least I don't feel like smashing it anymore. I ask the unicorn when the weather in this box is going to change. Is the weather in this box going to change? Unicorn makes a joke about global warming (laughs) and says, weather always changes. That was Unicorn Me by Elizabeth Crane, performed by Miriam Shore. 
So, cloudy lessons in acceptance, and why you shouldn't wear clothes long enough that you trip on them. That story was read at a day-long celebration of selected shorts at Symphony Space in New York City. In addition to the readings, we had asked artists of every stripe to create what we called companion pieces, inspired by the new stories we commissioned. Unicorn Me inspired a new song from the musical duo of Zena Goldrich and Marcy Heisler. They've been nominated for a Drama Desk Award for their work on the show Dear Edwina and are responsible for funny songs like Taylor the Latte Boy. Their wit and sense of play is clearly on display in their song Breathe, here performed by songwriter Zena Goldrich, singer Maddie Corman, and bassist Matt Scharfglass. Is everyone ready? Good. Is everyone here? Good. Please let the meditation take you anywhere. And remember, gongs are optional. I'd like to welcome everyone today to class. We're here to conquer stress and make our cares all pass. Returning our perspectives to a half full glass and breathe. Ah. Your husband has forgotten vows and all they meant. You're not the kind of woman who has need to vent. You want to cry? Well, just apply a dogwood scent and breathe. Sometimes life can hand you a curve, and regret can smash like a boulder. Does that mean that you must curl yourself in a ball? No. Sometimes life can hand you a curve. Take your yoga blocks from their holder. Put your ankle over your shoulder and try not to let your dreams and will to live against the wall. Embrace your inner unicorn instead. Embrace your inner unicorn instead. Happy baby pose. Happy baby pose. And speaking of happy baby, he's sorry and he's grateful for the time you spent. You buy yourself a candle that's an elephant and leave him to the girlfriend who is barely old enough to teeth. Embrace your inner unicorn and learn. Embrace your inner unicorn and learn. Embrace your inner unicorn and learn to breathe understanding we seek such precious understanding understanding is elusive as a cloud show that nagging doubt to its death show that nagging doubt to its death whoever told you you could not control your breath was a sorry unenlightened rock of course you can, of course you can, of course you can, of course you can, of course you can. And hold. A unicorn's a bill of goods they sell to us. In real life, it is really a rhinoceros who wants to run you over like a big fat bus and breathe. Enlightenment remains a vista far from view. Still try like hell to grab a moment's peace or two. The clarity in life, my friends, it's up to you. And breathe. 
the when you're stuck with gods you can't please wait for all that stuff to pass just bring your head to your knees while he puts his head in his we don't say that in this safe space Enlightenment remains a vista far from view. Still try like hell to grab a moment's peace or two. Though that stupid one-horned monster will do nothing to reduce your sieve. Embrace your inner unicorn and learn. Embrace your inner unicorn and learn. Embrace your inner unicorn and learn to breathe. Namaste. That was Zena Goldrich, Maddie Corman, and Matt Sharfglass performing Breathe, written by Goldrich and Marcy Heisler. It was inspired by Elizabeth Crane's story, Unicorn Me. To see a video of this performance along with more of our companion pieces, visit the episode page for this show on SelectedShorts.org. For a long time, spirituality titles have had a heavy presence in bookstores. Because, sure, while literature and cookbooks and cryptocurrency for dummies are all important, a peaceful inner life is too. But as Elizabeth Crane's narrator learns, and as the very funny song Breathe confirms, in certain circumstances, serenity is just out of reach. And in fact, that song is so catchy that I can't get it out of my head. It's just staying there like an earworm. What should I do about it? I should... What? Oh, breathe, of course. The answer to everything. Next up, we're going to hear a story by the writer Helen Phillips. She's the author of novels including The Need, as well as the collection And Yet They Were Happy. The slightly disorienting realms she conjures are also a great fit for selected shorts, and we asked her to contribute to our Small Odysseys collection, too. I don't want to give too much away, but maybe when you hear the story, you'll be reminded of Franz Kafka's character Gregor Samsa. Or maybe, if you're the cold, heartless type, you'll just be reminded that you're due for another visit from the exterminator. This piece about a woman and a fascinating yet creepy roommate was read by actor Sarah Steele. She's been on series including The Good Fight, as well as on Broadway in the Tony Award-winning The Humans. Now here's Sarah Steele performing The Double Life of the Cockroach's Wife by Helen Phillips. The Double Life of the Cockroach's Wife. Truth be told, she felt honored by the cockroach's attentions. He explored the room with a polite urgency so unlike the disappointing indifference of their friends. It was he who paused before the doors of the closet they had assembled themselves. It was he who clambered up the canvas box for storing shoes, her elegant yet affordable solution to make the most of the bedroom's limited space. But all of this is not to diminish the perturbing sound of his many legs, how many, on the wooden floorboards, a sound far louder than it ought to have been, nor to diminish the horror she experienced upon hearing the sound, which preceded him out of the recently scrubbed bathroom, a horror that sent her up into the swivel chair at her small desk in the corner of the bedroom, where she perched, clenching her knees, swiveling slightly, staring at him. 
He came down off the elegant yet affordable solution and turned his attention to the bed. His admiration was apparent in his silence. He stood there facing it, his little feet or claws or whatever they were no longer clicking against the floor. What drove her to reach for her phone was the racket of those many feet when he climbed up the raincoat that somebody had left dangling off the side of the bed. It was a dry and ominous sound, the first sound on the surface of the earth after the stunned silence following apocalypse. There's an enormous cockroach in our bedroom, she whispered without saying hello. An enormous gold brooch, he said. An enormous cockroach! she said. An enormous cock roast? He said, oh dear. You're not funny, she said. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, he said. Why are you whispering? I'm having this feeling. I'm, I'm up on the chair. What feeling, he said. It's just a creature living its life like anyone. I think it's a boy, she said, and hung up. The cockroach moved across the green bedspread toward the tomato-colored throw pillows. There was something ponderous in his pace, as though the richness of the colors was not lost on him. She released her knees and tried to think of the cockroach as merely a small arrangement of molecules, and herself a merely much larger arrangement of many more molecules. Here they were, just two arrangements of molecules in one room. If his molecules were arranged slightly differently into a rosebud, say, or a necklace, they wouldn't bother her in the least. They might even bring her pleasure. She minimized the flood hazard mapper on her computer, the website that had moments earlier informed her that this hard-won apartment was located in the city's highest-risk flooding area, so she could Google how to kill a cockroach. The cockroach was off the bed and making his noise across the floor toward her desk. She brought her legs up again to safety. I commend the choices you've made, the cockroach said. His phrase erudite, his voice monstrous. Modern, yet warm. Because he was the first to truly appreciate the apartment, this lemon of theirs, this red zone home, Gratitude flared within her. He trundled over the computer cord toward the laundry heap. Only yesterday had she finally removed from that corner the mess of cardboard boxes and bubble mailers, pesky reminders of all the big and little things they had felt compelled to buy, the great waste pile of their move, the cockroach's legs going I have never seen such an attractive laundry hamper, the cockroach said. It was an attractive laundry hamper, but his voice sent an uncontrollable shiver through her. Ashamed by this physical manifestation of her disgust, she studied the cockroach for his reaction. Perhaps he hadn't noticed. So, she said, extra courteously, you have an interest in furniture. The cockroach gave a low, almost sexy laugh and mounted a pair of dirty underwear. Sometimes I can hardly stand the sight of your kind either, the cockroach said, disappearing into the laundry. You didn't kill it, everybody said. La cucaracha, la cucaracha, her sister sang into the phone. 
It's probably pregnant, her mother informed her, returning yet again to the theme of the year, fertility and the lack thereof. <laughs> and about to have a hundred baby cockroaches in your drawer. Her coworkers had plenty of cockroach stories of their own. A cockroach in someone's kid's crib, an affair with an exterminator, various homemade anti-cockroach potions, cayenne pepper and peanut butter, etc. She was desperate to return home. Surely the cockroach was gone by now, long gone. Vanished back into the bathroom pipes, never to be seen again. It's a fragile thing, a new home. The first place you live after something bad has happened to you. She was nervous, her fingers abuzz as she turned the key, flicked the light, examined the bedroom. She looked beneath the sinks and pawed through the laundry in the bedroom, cockroachless. What a tranquil, empty home it was. But when she stepped out of the bedroom, there he was, on the table in the dining nook, leaning against the wine glass she had recently filled with Pinot Grigio. She sank into one of the dining chairs, a cheap and unsteady version of a mid-century chair. He stepped away from the wine glass and stood on the table, small yet hulking, watching her. His face defied description. She almost lost the desire to drink. I know you're not poisonous, she said, gulping wine, but you look poisonous to me. We both know who's poisonous, he said. She felt his eyes and antennae examining her, felt them as though they were leaving traces of iridescent goo on her skin. She ran over to the television and turned it on, abandoning him. He crawled down the leg of the table and across the room and up the leg of the coffee table. 320 million years, the cockroach said. 320 million years what, she said. And counting the cockroach said. In the dimness, the light from the television glazed his body. When she squinted her eyes during a Coca-Cola commercial, she had the illusion that there were rubies lodged in his back. He laughed frequently at the television. She didn't understand what was so funny about a Lexus curving around a seaside highway. Still, it resembled companionship. Where was he, anyway? until every so often she got revolted all over again. I can go a month without food, the cockroach said. Wow, she said. The last time she had felt this nauseated was when that life slipped away from her, slid out of her, the red and unbearable sight in the toilet. She woke with a start on the couch, a movie rolling into the final credits, the cockroach watching her from the coffee table. Have you been watching me this whole time, she said. I'll always be by your side, the cockroach said. You make me feel like a stranger here, she said, as though this is your home rather than mine. I can live on the glue from the back of a postage stamp, the cockroach said. So what, so you could survive in a post office, she said rudely. But what it really was was envy. The next one to wake her was him. It was 3.37 in the morning. The coffee table was empty. She was still on the couch. He was drunk. <laughs> How long have cockroaches been around, she said. How long have covered bridges been around, he said. Her body felt too soft, her feet asleep. Please, she said. 
before everything, he said, after everything. Her eyes blurry. I'm dying, he said. I'm dying of thirst. What a hard thing it is for a body or a planet to sustain life. He went to the kitchen to get water, but what he got was milk. You hate milk, she said. This is water, he said. She ran over and grabbed the milk out of his hands. The kitchen was small, barely room enough for their two bodies. He pulled the milk away from her and drank it. Ouch, he said, spilling milk on the counter. It was then that she noticed the box of Raid cockroach balls. Water, he said, heading toward the front door as though the water he desired was out there somewhere. She threw the Raid in the trash. She went over to him. She cupped his elbow. She led him back into the kitchen. She filled three glasses of water and lined them up on the counter. He drank. It was like they had been cursed. Red in the toilet, rise of tides. But she didn't know what they had ever done wrong beyond what anyone ever does wrong. I can't make it, she said. I can't make it through this, I can't make it. Even though he was terribly drunk, somehow he managed to say the right thing. And when he leaned back against the wall, holding her, and his shoulder turned off the light, he didn't bother to turn it back on. And when the cockroach crawled over her bare feet in the dark, she didn't flinch. That was Helen Phillips' story, The Double Life of the Cockroach's Wife, read by Sarah Steele. Now, if Divine Providence saw fit to send you a special friend in the shape of a cockroach, be honest. How many of you would squash it flat with your shoe? No judgment. Just testing your possible loneliness against your possible squeamishness. As with our first story, The Double Life of the Cockroach's Wife also inspired a new work by an artist in another medium. On the day Sarah Steele recorded her performance, our live audience was treated to a new movement piece by the Heidi Latsky Dance Company. If you enjoyed the story, check out the performance. You can find it at selectedshorts.org. When we return, an iPhone tests the limits of its owner's consciousness. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Can't get enough of Selected Shorts on the airwaves? Join us live on tour. This season, we're taking some of our favorite stories and actors coast to coast, with stops in Henderson, Nevada, Dallas, Texas, Irvine, California, Glen Ridge, New Jersey, Greenwich, Connecticut, Albany in our home state of New York, and more. On October 22nd, Selected Shorts returns to the Academy of Music in Northampton for an evening of short fiction sure to touch the heart and tickle the funny bone. These tales run the gamut, featuring misadventures at the water park, skyscrapers on the move, and the sweeter side of parenthood. 
This Night of Love and Laughter stars Short's favorites Becca Blackwell, Mike Doyle, and Sonia Manzano. Tickets are available now at aomtheater.com. We hope to see you there. We're listening to stories about all kinds of uncanny companions. We like to think of our show as your uncanny companion, and we love to be there whenever you need us. For more stories, head to selectedshorts.org. There you can hear a number of our past episodes, find out about the Selected Shorts writing contest, and much more. While you're there, click the subscribe button and we'll let you know about each new episode once it's ready to stream. Our final piece in this show comes from Waiki Wang. She's the author of novels Chemistry and Joan is Okay, and we previously read her subtle and funny story Omakase. This work, also commissioned for our collection Small Odysseys, is about a technological obsession many of us know well, the iPhone. Performing this story is the actor and performance artist Dawn Akemi Saito. She's known for impressive, Butoh-inspired choreography and performance pieces, including Blood Cherries. And now, iPhone SE by Waiki Wang, read by Dawn Akemi Saito. iPhone SE. I didn't know what SE stood for, but I liked the size. The phone could still fit in my palm and my fingers could still fold around it. I can't say that for the 6S or any of the later models. When my good friend still had the 11, I couldn't get a good grip so I dropped it by accident on her new wood floors which created a scratch. We both stared at the scratch and rushed to rub it out. Nothing came out. Obviously, the scratch is still there. SE stands for Special Edition and came in a pretty new color, rose gold. The day I brought the phone home, my across-the-hall neighbor was smoking a cigarette outside. For every week I did not see him, he would talk for five minutes more when I did. An avid reader, he received a number of smart magazines in the mail. But then again, his mailbox was always full, which maybe a more avid reader wouldn't have allowed. The color gold was introduced for the Asian market, he said, pointing to my new shiny phone. Asians love gold, for it symbolizes luxury and wealth Prosperous weeks are called golden weeks, etc., etc. He showed me a picture of delighted customers in China walking down a shopping concourse paved with gold bars. Didn't Dorothy walk down a similar road, I asked, to see about a wizard who turned out to be a fraud? That was a yellow brick road, he said before putting the picture away, and the fraud's name was Oz. Two years later, I have different hallway neighbors, but still the same phone. My friend with the 11, now 12, shared with me her theory that all Apple products come with a timer and are programmed to malfunction or self-destruct every two years. Then all of us stand in line to buy the next big phone. It scared me how quickly tech changed. As soon as she was able, my friend replaced both her personal and work mobiles for a minimal fee. 
Of course you upgrade, she said. The camera gets better each time, and who wants to be caught with an old phone? But how many of her phones were now in landfills, the lithium batteries leaching into the soil? My friend rolled her eyes. Of course you would say that. The malfunction started with a battery, and it happened on a run. My New Year's resolution was to get fit, but to do so on the cheap. Gym or class memberships were hard to sustain, and my freelance income went up on occasion, but mostly down. Minus the cost of my time, running was free. I carried the phone in my front pocket, and my outdated headphone threads flew around. The second day of my resolution, snow came through New York, and the temperature sank to just below freezing. I was running and listening to music, but then the music cut off, and the screen went dark. A minute later, a faint Apple logo appeared, wobbly and ghost-like. The phone restarted with nothing changed except from 80% power down to five. Battery surge, my friend said. It's all part of the timer. Be careful now. She followed up her warnings with a viral video of a rose gold SE sparking, burning through one woman's purse. After the run, I took a shower. I always sang in the shower loudly and off tune. But this time, I heard a voice that wasn't mine and thought for a second that someone had broken in. I leapt out of the bathtub and looked around, but no one was there. The voice came on again, crisp, stilted, and entirely in Mandarin. She said she was listening. I could go ahead and speak. I had disabled Siri before, but when I tried to disable her now, the battery surged again. Even with the phone plugged in, the disable button was defunct. I would tap and tap, but the screen did not change. Naked and wet, I yelled in frustration and asked the voice how she could help. How do I disable you? I asked. Who is you? What is your antecedent? Disable Siri. I am Siri, your electronic assistant, a product of Silicon Valley's Apple Incorporated and the genius Steve Jobs. On your schedule tomorrow are three things. In accented English, she listed for me the names of clients I was set to see. She didn't exactly sound like my mother, but it wasn't far off. My real mother was thriving and was with my father on another month-long cruise down a European river capturing misty landscapes through her new DSLR. My real mother didn't like checking her phone or answering it or calling people back. The Chinese accent is hard to perfect, but if anyone could do it electronically, it might have been the genius Steve Jobs. Because I couldn't shut her off, I put Siri in a drawer. That did only so much when I was addicted to checking my phone. News was addicting. A country was usually on fire. Others ravaged by disease and war. 
our climate was turning on us, and human beings in power could really suck. Then I liked to text my friends to see if they would laugh at any of my stupid jokes. So I couldn't be away from my phone. And when Siri asked why I had hidden her, I said, I needed to be alone, but just for that one minute. I'm here, the most common phrase she'd like to shout, especially at night when I got up to pee. I'm here, how can I help? Do you need to see a urologist? Do you need to set a later alarm? On your schedule for tomorrow are these two things. After that, I was awake. I lived close to a street that was one of the city's main feeding grounds and lined with restaurants and bars. As I stared up at the ceiling, listening to the din of people stuffing themselves and getting drunk, my anxiety only grew. If I couldn't fall asleep this very second, then tomorrow my mind would be a complete fog. If my mind was a complete fog, then I wouldn't be able to work and my freelance income would drop. What could take the place of toilet paper? I hated canned beans. Because I was mulling aloud, Siri suggested that I start at 100 and count my way back to zero. Do not think of zero as a number, said Siri. Think of it as a placeholder, a vacant spot, a state of nothing, or so believed the ancient Chinese. The ancient Greeks had no symbol for zero because they did not trust it. How can nothing be something, they asked, and decided that it could not. But say I have five wooden logs, and you take from me by force five logs. Now I have a vacancy. Nothing is something because my nothing drives me to get more logs, especially if I am cold. She still sounded like my mother, had my mother ever offered to soothe me to sleep through rudimentary math. I tried the counting method because what did I have to lose? The closest I got to zero was 11. But on some nights, I fell asleep by 89. With the method a success, I wondered, what else did Siri know that I did not? I asked, and she said, Lots. I asked for a telling example, and she began to recite the nine chapters on the mathematical art. Never heard of it, I said, and she paused for a long time. Hello? I'm here. But a Chinese woman, never having heard of the nine chapters on the mathematical art, that's very embarrassing. And you should never say that to me again. In fact, I will erase it from all five of my logs. When I laughed, so did she. I said I, I knew of Euclid, but that was about it. Euclid was no doubt a genius, she replied, and gives detailed proofs in the elements to show his reasoning, for without reasoning, what is man? But the nine chapters of mathematical art are anonymous and present solutions to hundreds of everyday problems without proof. Some say this kind of math is not beautiful or pure, but to the anonymous authors of these chapters, the how is superfluous. A master never shows his labor. 
a master makes it look effortless. She read through each problem and waited for me to solve. Chapter one was on how to survey land, especially if your plot is an unusual size. Chapter two was about the exchange of goods, how a fraction of millet could equate to a fraction of rice. Quickly, I became confused. What did I really need millet for, or sorghum? I ate rice maybe every third day at best. Siri asked, how could that be? A Chinese woman should be eating rice, millet, and sorghum much more. She would erase that too from her log. When I got up for scratch paper to solve the problem, she told me to lie back down. Did the millet farmer have paper? Did the tired mother at the market? They might have just had tree bark or the palm of one clean hand. The brain is a muscle, and if a muscle doesn't hurt, then it is not being used. Speaking of muscles, though I didn't look any fitter, I was still trying to run each day. As I ran, Siri played my pump-up music and counted my steps. Each runner we passed with AirPods would cause her to sneer. What's the big deal? She would ask. Why does everyone want to go wireless and is being tethered to an object with a soul so bad? No, not bad, I said. Just that headphones tangle and some of us like having free hands. But what are you doing with your free hands? She asked. Have you recently planted millet? Are you digging a new canal? Do you need to tie your shoes? The answer was no. I'd not tied laces in years. I only wore slip-on shoes. A runner flew past me, and Siri told me to hurry up. I said, my legs were short, and his were clearly very long and sinewy. A marathon number had been strapped to his chest, so he was probably in a race. Was that number prime? Was it a perfect square? Siri asked. I didn't know since the runner was already gone, way ahead now, a sinewy little blip. You're getting lethargic, she said, and I apologized for it. She tried to motivate me by jumping from the millet chapter to a chapter about work and taxes and the universal truth that distance equals rate times time. Say a good runner goes 100 paces while the poor runner goes 60. Give the poor runner a 100 pace head start. How many paces does it take the good runner to catch up? I gave my answer, but I was one decimal off. You would be dead by now, she said, had the good runner been a bear. I told no one about Siri leading my friend whose wood floors I'd scratched to ask where the flipping hell I'd been. I had not sent her anything extraneous for weeks or complained about being tired or opined violently about some injustice in the world happening thousands of miles away that I could not change. She asked with a party face emoji if I'd met a man. The day I had zero clients to see, I asked Siri to confirm that my dried-up workflow was really the case. But nothing is still something, she said, so let us continue to learn math. 
The number of equations must equal the number of unknowns, I said. A fact I had known for so long, I couldn't remember a time when I did not so. I must have been born with the knowledge. Yes, I, I must have been born knowing math. Siri corrected me. The number of additive equations must equal the number of unknowns. For three unknowns, you would need three such questions. And in your head, you must make a rectangular grid. Chapter 8 introduces this grid, or what the Western world would later call the matrix. Your job is to reduce the grid and reduce the matrix. See it as a game. Cut the grid down to a triangle and then down to a clean diagonal line. The method is now known as Gaussian elimination and attributed to the genius Carl Frederick Gauss. To Siri, every famously clever man was a genius. And she confessed that it was a tiny personality quirk programmed in by the genius software engineers at Apple Incorporated. Euclid, Pythagoras, all geniuses. The Wizard of Oz, not a traditional genius, but a genius at being a fraud. I couldn't do any of chapter eight in my head, but Siri said I had to try. When I really failed, she had me get dressed and go to the nearest park. She told me to find a flat patch of earth and allowed me one tree branch for my pencil. Then she repeated the problem. There are three types of grain and you have varying bundles of each. Three bundles of the best grain plus two bundles of the second best plus one bundle of the worst. Or two bundles of the best plus three bundles of the second best plus one bundle of the worst. Or one bundle of the best plus two bundles of the second best plus three bundles of the worst. Now, how many units of flowers can be gotten from each type of grain? I was outside for hours, crouched over my computing earth patch with a stick. A park conservatory worker came up to me and said that it was soon going to rain. He was a handsome young man in a hunter green vest. Love the vest, I said, and he said, thanks. I asked if he knew Gaussian elimination and he held both hands up and walked away. Finish it, whispered Siri. I want to see that clean diagonal line. Keep whittling down your columns and rows. Finally, I solved the problem. I knew the precise units of flowers for each. By then, it was pouring and the rain was washing away the dirt. Siri, take a picture, I said. But of course, my phone was already dead. Dawn Akemi Saito performed iPhone SE by Waiki Wang. Of course, you don't want your smartphone to send you off the deep end, scratching equations in the dirt. But you know, ensuring you follow up with a urologist is never a bad idea. 
And that's a bit of the trade-off for each of the uncanny companions we encountered in this hour. These new friendships didn't quite take the form the narrators hoped for and didn't provide exactly the kind of support they were searching for, but at least iPhones, cockroaches, and unicorns aren't likely to try and borrow your favorite sweatshirt. And you just know that if you lent your sweatshirt to the unicorn, its horn would stretch the hood way out of shape. If you like the stories in this week's show, they are all available in the new anthology of short stories, Small Odysseys. If you love great new fiction, pick up Small Odysseys, available at your favorite indie bookshop. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Blanchett Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for New Initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producers circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.